So today we're talking about verses 17 to 29, and we're going to just talk through what I kind of came up to call the solution. And now, Romans is all about the gospel. We've been talking about this for weeks. Right now, we're in a pretty heavy part of it where Paul is building a case as to why we all need the gospel that he talked about in 116, that it is the power to save. And so we spend a lot of the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two talking about all these reasons that people need the gospel, that people need Jesus. So this is kind of the first starting of a transition. At the end of chapter three is where we really start to get in Paul explaining the gospel. So right now, he's still doing a lot of setup, and he's trying to make sure that everyone's included. We are are reading those verses, and the whole point that Pastor Jacob was talking about is that we all fall somewhere in that category. We have all done something that is wrong and sinful and separates us from God. So now he starts speaking directly to the Jews, and the thing about the Jews is they thought they already had the solution to the issues that, that Paul brought up in chapters one and the beginning of chapter two. They already thought that they had the answers. So what we're going to do is kind of go through this part today and try to figure out what the solution is and whether the Jews really had it, whether they really understood it. So the first thing that I kind of want to go through, and this is really what inspired the Scooby-Doo clip that no one except me liked this morning. And it's the word pseudo. So I I was thinking of this and I was thinking about like just being kind of fake. And that's, that's kind of part of what this message is about is, but, but it's not about trying to be fake. It's about kind of thinking you're really close to the solution, but you just kind of, you just missed it by that much. And it says, this is the definition of pseudo, not actually, but having the appearance of pretended, false, or a sham. And so a lot of the points that I'm going to talk about today have this word in front of it, because what we're going to see as we look through this is that the Jewish people kind of were so close and that had the appearance of being correct. They had the appearance of the solution, yet it was a sham, yet it was false, it was pretended. And so we're going to start in verse, well, let me rephrase this. Open your Bibles to Romans 2, verse 17. All right, man, tough crowd today. No one likes Scooby-Doo. No one likes God's word. I'm up against it. All right, this is Paul talking to the Romans. He says, you who call yourself Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants, you know what is right, because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Now, I feel like even with the tone of this, that you can kind of sense that there's like a butt coming. Like you can kind of tell Paul's really like kind of playing into it. And he's, it's kind of like this false, like building up. He's like, you guys, you know, God's law and you're relying on it. And you think you can teach people. And you kind of know that that switch is coming where he's going to tell them why it's not true. And when I read this section, what I see the 
the Israelite people kind of holding on to is a pseudo-savior. They are looking at themselves and their knowledge of the law, and they're believing that they know that the law is kind of their savior. That was, that was kind of how they, they go, if you obey the law, then you're going to please God. And then what they were hoping for was they were waiting on the Messiah, right? They were waiting on God's chosen Messiah to come and to rescue them. Now, what the Israelites believed is that he was going to come and rescue them from political national oppression of Rome and of Persia and all of the different countries that they had been enslaved to all this time, like he did in Egypt, and he rescued them from slavery. Now they're going, the closer that we get to God by obeying the law, the more and more we influence God to send the Messiah to save us from the Romans. So they had kind of a twisted view of the Messiah. They saw the Messiah as someone that could save them from their physical, political, national issues. But they saw the law as the answer to their spiritual issues. And they thought, if we can obey the law, if we rely on God's law and our special relationship with him, then the Messiah will come sooner, he will save us from Rome, and then we're good. Because the better that we perform, then God's going to move on our behalf and save us. Not from sin, because the law does that. He's going to save us from Rome. I think one of the hardest parts of beginning to mature and get older in the church and as, as you get to know God more and as you get to read the Bible more and more, you, your perspective of, of who you are in passages really change. Um, the first time I read different stories in the Bible, I, like, I read the story of Noah, and I was like, I'm like Noah, I love God, and I would do what God wanted, and I would build the ark, and I would have that faith. And it's like, you put yourself kind of as the hero of stories, but I've noticed that the, the more I study, the older I get, the more I really begin to have a clearer picture of myself, it kind of changes who I am in the stories. I don't, I don't relate to Noah as much as all the people telling Noah he's stupid, I don't really relate to the father in the story of the prodigal son as much as I relate to the older brother that wants to judge the person that messed up and wanted to fix their life later. And in this, I would have thought I was Paul helping these Jews figure out what the real answer was. Who was their real savior? And I'm here to bring the truth to them and I've, I've been enlightened and I can help them. And I thought I was like Paul and the more and more I read it over the last few weeks, the more I realized that I'm one of the Jews. I'm one of the people that thinks they have the answers. I'm one of the people that thinks if I work hard enough, I'll get the result that I'm looking for. And I think as we go through this passage, it can be helpful to us, for those of us who know Jesus and have a relationship with him and, and believe in God and believe in the gospel, that if we'll kind of take a step back and look at ourselves, and when we see the word Jews, we, kind of, we can kind of insert the word church or believers or Christians and people who have known God, because I think it's really easy to fall in to this line of thinking that the Israelites thought of. And we believe that, like the Israelites did, they're thinking, 
man, if I just rely on God's law, if I help other people who are so lost, then the Messiah will come, he'll save us. And we think that's silly now, but when you think about your own life, how often do you think like, man, if I give enough at church, if I serve enough, if I'm, if I'm kind enough, if, if, I'm, if I perform well enough, God's gonna show up for me and he's gonna do this thing that I need him to do. And it becomes very transactional, our relationship with God, right? We think, man, if I really put in the hours and I put in the work and I really, really, really try to please God, then he will definitely fix my relationship with my spouse. If I just focus on everything else, he'll come in and he'll rescue that because I did my part. And here we see the Jewish people believed Verse 19, it says, you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. And as I read this verse, I was like, that, that's me so often. And I think, I think there is truth to that because we have been given an understanding and a relationship with God. So it is our job to help people get to know him. But I think too often I'm much more on the side that Paul's talking about here where it's going, you're relying on the fact that you're separate. Because the wording here is more like, you're convinced that you're separate from those people that need the light. You're convinced that you're better than those people that need a guide in the darkness. And when I read this, I immediately thought of the story in John chapter nine. Jesus heals this man who was born blind and he goes to the priests and they're like, who did this? And he's like, I don't know, but he, uh, he performed this miracle. It was Jesus. And they're like, tell us how he did it. He goes, I don't know what to tell you, but no one's ever been able to heal people of blindness. So if he's not from God, I don't know who is. And they're like, you were born in sin. You're nonsense. So then they finally find out, they find Jesus and find out that he healed this guy. And so the Pharisees, the, the church people, come to Jesus and they're like, why did you do this? And Jesus is saying, he's going, I came to give sight to the blind, to give light to people in darkness. And they go, are you calling us blind? They take it personally because they're picking up on what Jesus is putting down. And this is what Jesus's reply was. He said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. And I think this is kind of what Paul's talking about. He's going, you're saying that you are separate from those that are blind. You're saying that you are separate from those that need guidance. You're saying that you're better than them, that you have the answers, and you're supposed to guide them. He's going, but really what you're doing is you're denying the fact that you are just as blind, that you are just as much in darkness. You're relying on your ability to obey God's law to make you better than other people so that you can help them obey God's law. They were believing in a pseudo-savior. They believed that the law could save them based on how well they performed. This next section is verses 21 to 24, and it says this. It says, well then, this is where Paul kind of flips the switch on. He goes, well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell, you tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? 
You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. So here Paul goes, if you think you're so much better than these people and you're telling them what they're supposed to do, why is it that you're not doing what you're telling them they're supposed to do? Now, Pastor Jacob and I were talking about this and, and it's kind of split 50-50 on scholars. Some people think he literally means there were people stealing and that was a big, big issue and there were people committing adultery. Pastor Jacob and I talked and we feel kind of the, the flow of what Paul's trying to say is he's not trying to be that specific. He was very specific in chapters one and two at the beginning going, these are things that you guys are messing up in. These are the things that you've exchanged for the truth of God. And here he's just going, you tell people not to do something and yet you do it. You tell people that this is the way to live, yet you don't live perfectly the way you're telling them that they need to live. Paul is exposing the, the fact that they can't even fulfill the law that they're telling other people they have to fulfill. This is their pseudo-solution. It looks like it's the answer. If we just do enough, God will work on our behalf. But really... It's, it's a sham because the answer isn't in how well we can do because at the end of the day, you can't perform well enough. You can't actually live up to the standard that you're telling people they have to live at. Israel's solution wasn't real because they couldn't live up to it. They were doing the very things that they were teaching other people not to do. You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, this part is huge, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. So the Gentiles say untrue things about the character of God because of you. And I thought about that and I was like, well, if people have a wrong view of God because of us, that means obviously we're not reflecting God perfectly. But what I think Paul's getting at here is not just that you know, we're not perfect and we're not exactly like God. But he's going, you're giving them a pseudo solution. You're giving them a fake solution. You're telling people that if they follow the law and if they're good enough, that God will rescue them. And that is causing people to think wrongly about God because then people who don't know God are going, well, he just has these list of rules, and if I follow the rules, then I'm good. If I break the rules, I'm not good. And that's not an accurate depiction of the character of God. That's not what God is trying to do in the world. He's trying to bring people into relationship with him, to reconcile people back to him, not based on how well they can follow rules, but based on how well Jesus fulfilled the character of God. So instead of pointing people to Jesus, the real savior, they were pointing people to a pseudo savior, a fake savior of the law. And instead of offering people the solution, which is have faith, repent, confess, turn to God, and you will be saved, they have this sham of a solution that we can't live up to because we can't follow the law perfectly. It's our own hypocrisy 
and false representation of God's plan for salvation that can cause Gentiles, unbelievers, people that don't know God, to say untrue things about God. Verses 25 to 28 says this. There's going to be a lot of talk about circumcision in the next two weeks, just so you know. Sorry. Um, the, Jewish, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. If the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. Now I was trying to figure out why there's so much talk about circumcision with the Jewish people. And so we, we, we have to take a step back and look back in Genesis where God creates this kind of covenant of circumcision with Abraham. And basically, circumcision was an outward symbol in order to show that the people who carried this symbol had faith in the covenant that God made with Abraham. So it's an outward symbol that they belonged to God. That's why it was so important for Jewish people, for Jewish males to be circumcised. And anyone who was in a Jewish family, whether it be a servant or anyone who came in to be a part of the Israelite people, all males had to be circumcised because it was a symbol that you belonged to God's promise and that you belonged to God's family. So I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, so why, why does Paul use this as an example And I really think that he's using this because the Jews put so much stock in it. And if you think back about the first two sections, the Jews put a lot of stock in what they did. They put a lot of stock in how they acted. They put a lot of stock in their own morality and their own ability to be good according to the law. And so I believe that circumcision is used as kind of the metaphor and as the example because the Israelite people valued outward symbols more than an inward transformation. And so often I think that's us because Paul just starts kind of tearing down really a pillar of what the Jewish people felt was important to show that they belong to God. They're saying, this separates us from all other people. This separates us and shows that we are part of God's family because other people don't have this circumcision and we do. But Paul says circumcision only has value if you obey God's law. If you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And he goes on to say that, that people who aren't circumcised, if they obey the law, it's just like they are circumcised. So it's going... He's going, even if you don't have the outward appearance of someone that belongs to God's promise and God's family, if you live in a way that honors God, that is just as good and a symbol of belonging to God's family and God's promise. Now, I liken the, 
in the ESV translation, the end of verse 25, where it says, if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. An even better translation in the ESV says, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And, 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 the, and the wording in Greek actually has this idea of an exchange happening. So it's going, if you're breaking God's law, it's like it undoes the act of circumcision. So it's going, you have this symbol that shows that you belong to God, but if you're breaking his law, it's actually undoing it and showing that you don't belong to him at all. And then he goes on to say, but someone who doesn't have that outward symbol, who lives up to the law, that person is as good as circumcised. They have that outward symbol to show that they belong to me. And I think this is the huge idea that we have to take away from this, all this circumcision talk that we're, it's, it's such a weird metaphor. But I think it has to do with behavior modification. Because if you think about what they were doing, the Israelites were modifying their bodies to show that they belonged to God. And this is kind of where that little connection is with Scooby-Doo, because all the villains in Scooby-Doo, they were modifying the outside to make people think differently about the inside. How often do we do that? How often do we go, if I can just modify my behavior, people will believe that I belong to God. People will see. How often do we go, man, if I just lived for God better, if I was a better person, then people would see Jesus more clearly and would love him more and would, you know, I'd be a better example But what God's saying here is if all we're doing is changing the outside, if all we're doing is modifying our behavior, it's fake, it's useless, it's a sham. It's a pseudo-circumcision because it makes us a stranger to God. It makes us not belong even though we thought we belonged because we were doing all the right things. And then when I was thinking of this, I'm trying to think back to like, this is pretty harsh. Or, uh, did Jesus like back this up? You know, because that's kind of, I, I do that a lot. When something gets really harsh, I think we like to go, well, Jesus wouldn't have said that. You know, oh man, that's, that's way too tough. Jesus was more accepting and loving. And we go to Matthew chapter seven. It's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is, is preaching and he goes, not everyone who comes to me on the day of judgment saying, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. And then those people who, who are using his name go, but God, we, we cast out demons in your name. We healed people in your name. We did miracles in your name. And this is Jesus' response in verse 23. He says, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. The pseudo-circumcision is us trying to do things on the outside without really letting God on the inside to change it because we just want the appearance of belonging to God. Because it's a lot easier to modify our behavior to do the right thing. This is pretty much how I lived most of my Christian life from about sixth grade until high school was like, I just, I gotta be a good kid. I gotta follow the rules. I gotta do the right thing. I gotta work hard in school. I have to be nice. I have to not, you know, do all these things that I'm not supposed to do. 
And it says that the circumcision becomes uncircumcision if you're breaking the laws. Now, the catch to all of this is that we know that we all break the law, right? So this is where it gets tricky because we're going, wait, he said that the Gentiles who keep the law are, are just as good, as, are better than Israelites that couldn't keep the law. He even says that Gentiles who keep the law condemn the Jewish people who break the law, even though they're circumcised. And so, in my mind, I'm going, but they, they can't keep the law either. Paul already established that, and he's kind of foreshadowing to what he's going to talk about in chapter 3 and, and later on in this letter. The Jews didn't have the law, or the, the Gentiles, excuse me, didn't have the law, right? That's how we started. They thought, the Jews go, we have the law, we can obey God, then we're good. The Gentiles didn't have that. Then the Jews go, well, we have circumcision. That shows that we belong to God. The Gentiles didn't have that. So the only way that Gentiles could even come to God was through Jesus. Gentiles weren't allowed to, become, to come into the inner parts of the temple because they weren't Jewish. And Jesus came and he changed that to where Gentiles could come to God the same as his chosen people. So what Paul's really foreshadowing to here is that the Gentiles are relying on Jesus to keep the law, not on their own ability to keep the law. Because in Matthew 7, those people who said, but we did all these things in your name, so they did the things that God wanted them to do, but how does Jesus respond? He says, you, he, he, he calls them you who break God's law. Now, Pastor Jacob talked about this in the last few weeks, that when we rely on our own ability to keep the law, like these people did, we fall short. That's what chapters one and two were all about, is how we all don't measure up, how we all are sinners. And so, Jesus is looking at this, these people, and even though they did all these great things for him, he's going, but I never knew you, and you are the ones who break God's law. So we have a pseudo-savior. The law can't save you. We have a pseudo-solution that if we keep the law, we'll be fine. And we have a pseudo-circumcision that if we change the outside, we're good. And we belong to God. And now, in the very last verse of chapter 2, in verse 29... Paul kind of sets it all right. So he has all these things that the Jews are believing that isn't true. And he comes to this in verse 29. He says, no, a true Jew, so a true Christian, a true person who belongs to God, is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people.
He even says here, a true circumcision is not simply obeying the letter of the law, which is what the Jews were comfortable with, which is what we're comfortable with. If, I, if you just tell me what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do, I can do this Christian life and I'm gonna make it work and I'm gonna make it happen. It'll be hard because I wanna do stuff I shouldn't and I don't wanna do everything I'm supposed to, but hey, if I can just do this checklist, I'm gonna be good. And God goes, it's not about obeying the letter of the law, It is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. So God flips this idea of circumcision being something that happens on the outside to something that has to happen on the inside first. And then he's saying that the law, the letter of the law can't save you. Only a change in the Holy Spirit, someone whose heart is right with God, And that's the true solution. So here we see the true circumcision, the true savior, and the true solution, all in one verse. God is trying to speak to these Roman Jews, going, you don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to rely on the letter of the law. You don't have to rely on these old symbols just trying to show the outside that you're different. The inside has to actually change. A true Jew, a true person that belongs to God is someone whose heart is right with God. It is a change of heart produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, we read this and we're like, man, this is just mind-blowing. God's totally flipping upside down the law of circumcision. He's totally throwing these Jewish people for a loop going, what, everything that I thought was good enough isn't good enough anymore. But we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is what God said. He said, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So this really isn't a new concept. The fact that God wants us to have our hearts be the thing that shows we belong to him. He cares more about the change on the inside than some kind of a physical change on the outside. He cares more about an inward transformation by the spirit that causes us to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul, more than he cares about a ritual or a behavior modification on the outside. And I want to close with this thought. So we know that it was talking about how the very end right here says, a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people, which is true. A more accurate translation we can see in the ESV, and it says this. His praise, so the person that does those things, that has change in their heart produced by the Holy Spirit that is right with God, that person's praise is not from man, but from God. So it's not just only that we we want God's approval, we want God's, praise is such a weird word because only God's worthy of praise, but what the word's trying to get at is this idea of like approval of of going, it honors him. 
right? So we want God to be honored instead of wanting people to be honored. And this is tough because this is kind of the challenge to us as Christians and as a church and as a community because I think praise comes from men when we change the outside, right? The, back in, I don't know, the 2000s, like even a little bit before I was like in youth group, there used to be huge things where everyone would get all their secular music and they'd have a bonfire and they'd burn it all, right? And that earned like so much acclaim, like, oh, these students are, you know, they're really trying to be different for God. And I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't listen to secular music. That's not my point. My point is that a lot of people do things and change their behavior on the outside in order to seek praise and approval from people in their lives. But when we're not just changing our behavior, when we're allowing the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and to, to produce a changed heart, to make a heart that's right with God, even if people don't see the immediate results, even if people only see the struggle, they only see the fight, they only see that you can't quite do what you want to do yet, but you're allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you and you're allowing the Holy Spirit to change you, you may not get the same approval and praise from people. But that's the heart that pleases God. That's the life that pleases God. It's not someone who makes these outward changes, but someone who truly opens up their heart to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. God isn't looking for the right heart. He's not looking for the right life. He's not looking for you to be all fixed up and, and to change all the bad things that you do that you know you need to stop. He's looking for someone that's willing to say, I need you. He's not looking for someone that says, I know the way to go. I can be a guide to other people. I can set an example. I can, I can blaze a trail so that all these poor people behind me can follow and know how to please God. He's looking for the person that goes, I need you. I can't please you. I can't do this. I don't want to be faking it. I don't want to be a sham. I don't want to be someone who's just trying to do it and make these changes on my own. I want, some, I want to be someone that's actually wrestling with all of it inside, that's allowing you to change my desires, not just my behaviors. And as we go on in Romans, we're going to get closer and closer to what the solution really is and how it's in Jesus and how he took our place and how he can make us right with God because we can't obey the law. We know all that because we kind of cheated. We have the spoilers, right? And we're going to get to that in Paul's letter. But the reason we're talking about the solution today, it's, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because it's not the solution. The solution has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our ability to do something or to not do something. It doesn't even have to do with whether or not we let God produce the change in us. It's about what Jesus did. It's about being okay with 
with not being able to do it on our own. It's about being okay with admitting that we can't do it. It's, okay. it's about being okay with admitting that we need the Holy Spirit to come in and produce a right heart in us. That we're not going to keep clinging on to these fake things, these shams, these things that have the appearance of salvation that can never measure up. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts. We, we pray that you would change our hearts through your word. And your word today is that we need our hearts to change and that it's not about us doing the right thing or saying the right things or anything we can do. It's about you coming and making that change inside of us. God, we want to be people that please you. We want to be people that honor you. And God, as we, as we sing this song, as we take communion to remember that Jesus is the true solution, that what you did is what enables us to have your Holy Spirit come in and change us and produce a new life and produce new things. Help us to tear away everything that's fake about us. Help us to tear away everything that tries to make us look a certain way even if we're not and that we would be okay with being a work in progress, that we'd be okay with admitting that we need you to change us, that we can't do it on our own, that we can't change ourselves, but God, that we trust you to do what only you can do, to bring change, to produce a heart that is right with you through the Holy Spirit. So God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts that as we sing these words, they had become true, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified in everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you guys stand and we sing this last song, um, please feel free to come forward and take communion. We're going to take this time to look to Christ, to look to the change that he wants to make in our hearts. And as we take communion together and remember what Jesus did for us to make it possible to even come to him.